What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Nuclear Barbarians. It is I, your nuclear barbarian, Emmett Penny. And today I have a guest that, well, we've been trying to get this going for a little bit now. This is Nick O'Hara, um, who I discovered from some shockingly pro-nuclear salon articles and a great podcast called Gridlock. And we'll get to all of that. But for now, what is up, Nick? Thanks for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me on the show. It's an absolute pleasure to join you. Um, and thank you for bearing with me. You're, you're right. Um, you know, I kind of I, I had a couple of months out in Spain this summer and I've just various things. I've I've been a bit tied up, but I'm really pleased to finally be with you on Barbarians. I would say I'm excited, but that would be terribly American of me. And over on this side <laughs> of the Atlantic, we, yeah, we don't what, really. What do y'all say? <laughs> we, we don't really do it, at least not in our language. You know, we and we certainly are never super excited. No, that's um, true. I've noticed this. <laughs> yeah, no, we're um, normally whatever we say, you know, just 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 add a few, add a, add a few, upgrade it with some some more power in your mind, and you'll probably get our meaning. So, gotcha. um, yeah, good is great. <laughs> good is great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, so there's a lot I want to get into because I think that you're doing some really interesting stuff. Um, especially as I've been sort of like picking my way through gridlocked and stuff like that, but. Before any of that, I'm gonna. I want to ask you sort of the first question I ask everybody because I really love hearing people's stories um, about how they end up at nuclear. So, like, what's your what's your background? I always joke that it's like something has to happen to you for you to get into nuclear. <laughs> so, like, why don't you tell me the story here? Well, I mean, do you want me to start in the beginning of the time, or I mean, you know, about me or or with nuclear? I mean, my my story is kind of similar to. I think a lot of people, but let me let me just say a few words because I, I want to say about the, the the place I was born. Yeah, please. Which which, which doesn't get much of airtime. It's a, a city called Portsmouth, which is a unique and historic city on the south coast of England, and it's the home of the Royal Navy. It's the birthplace of Charles Dickens, the great civil engineer Isambard Kingdom Brunel, um, the legendary Peter Sellers, star of the Goon Show. And Inspector Clouseau in the Pink Panther films. Love those um, films. Yeah, I mean, mate, he 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 was just—he's a genius. Near where my dad lives, there's a blue plaque on the wall above the Mayfair Chinese restaurant, which is where he was born. Um, and in fact, when I was born, the British Prime Minister at the time was James Callaghan. Uh, so this is when Jimmy Carter was president. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm I'm aging myself now, but Callahan had been born in in the same city, Portsmouth, 66 years before I was. So I'm I'm in I'm in good company there. Um, and and uh, Pompey, the the football team is the biggest, best team in the south of England, and the only team outside of London to have ever been champions of England. And there will be some people in Southampton and Brighton and other places if they tune into this. They'll be throwing stuff at whatever device they're listening to <laughs> but i had i had to get it in there yeah um, good good so yeah i'm i'm from there although my, my father's irish my mother's from a small island off the coast of normandy called guernsey so my heritage i mean depending on when you want to start the clock is i mean i'm franco-irish really um where's your uh, father from in ireland he he is he was raised as a good catholic boy in belfast oh that's where my family's from really yeah. Oh yeah, uh, amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, excellent. No, it's it's great. I mean, he he left in 64, 16 years old, and joined the Royal Navy, which 
if you'd given it five years, that he probably wouldn't have done that with all the troubles, you know, but it was, he just avoided. I was about to say, he got right in under the wire there. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I mean, he's, yeah, complete traitor. Um, uh, he has no time, by the way, for the bigotry and it will raise me sure, to sure. also have no time for it. But what's great is I, I have an Irish passport, thanks to my dad. Um, and I am Irish. I mean, you know, you can't, I could, with a name like O'Hara, you can't avoid it. But it, yeah. it means that I've, I've got both British and Irish, but the Irish one is far more valuable because it's an EU passport. Mm-hmm. And it means I can as I did this summer, I can come and go freely to Spain and France and Germany and wherever um, and enjoy those benefits. But um, you, you, you did have, a, I guess, you, you wanted to talk about, um, uh, well, nuclear. Um, yeah, well, and just your background, right? Because I don't think that like, you know, what sure. you've done before that is this totally different story. So I'm down to hear... Okay, I'll keep going. Thing. Yeah, keep well, going. I mean, I'm, it, it, I'm liking this. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, storyteller. So my my one English grandparent, so my mum's dad was English, and he was a real storyteller. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder whether a lot of my fascination in the world and telling stories maybe came from him. Mm. Um, but yeah, professional background. I'm I'm public policy communication strategist by trade. Uh, more recently, as you've alluded to, I've got into writing in a big way and and dipped my toe into the podcast realm with Gridlocked. Um, and, you know, I've become something of a nuclear geek. Uh, I'm definitely well on the path. In fact, so I, as I said, I'm, I spent a couple of months this summer in Spain, as, as you know, because we do communicate. And um, most of that time I was in Barcelona, but definitely one of the highlights of my well, it was about two and a half months, was when I was based in Tarragona province. And I realized that where I was staying, there was a nuclear power plant. And I even did a coastal hike specifically to get close to the plant. Oh, cool. And and I took some pictures, which I may or may not have WhatsApped to a certain professor at MIT. <laughs> but, you know. well, that's awesome. That's awesome. So... So what's the road then from public uh, communication strategist, public policy guy towards uh, these new turns um, you have in your career towards this sort of like science and climate communication stuff? I mean, I knew it was always important, um, but I really, it was a couple of years ago that started in earnest. And I had the very good fortune to be introduced to Jacopo Bongiorno, MIT professor of nuclear science and engineering, who uh, I guess most of your or many of your listeners will be familiar with his work. And that was in relation to a potential project on micro nuclear batteries in the lead up to COP26 in Glasgow. Um, and, and Jacopo ran me through not, not only micro reactor technology, but nuclear mm. more broadly. And and I was immediately hooked, you know, on not the technology so much, but the possibilities that nuclear could offer, especially advanced and micro reactor technology. Um, and so really, my mind was blown, you know, by, by the prospects, not just the clean energy prospect, but for a new industrial age that this, mm. you know, the, these innovations could deliver. Um, and, you know, yes, clean energy, the carbon free future that we need but also the possibility to completely restructure industrial production and the ways in which our societies are organized. Um, 
especially if we can bring on stream the portable plug and play micro reactors mm-hmm. um that, that that i was discussing with, with or rather that yakko was discussing with me and and the beauty of those of course you can provide not just electricity but heat and electricity in any location and being co-located with the end user you can enable advanced production advanced manufacturing to take place in any location especially you know in left behind communities commodity dependent regions um so you know you you, you want to resolve some of the issues in the rust belt you know the united mm-hmm. states for example perfect solution you know we don't need to go back to coal we can do new things and keep those jobs there but we can also lo- lo- unlock the potential of commodity dependent regions in africa which have been kept behind mm-hmm. for decades we can completely transform um people's you know economic fortunes um for me that's the beauty of technological innovations not in you know how they work from a technical perspective but the new possibilities for human Mm. advancement that they offer us no i love that i do a lot of thinking about that you know one of the things that i like to say is that you know for nuclear i'm sort of at this point where i think about it not even in terms of climate anymore because to me, like a lot of the climate solutions are sort of out there already, and it's about acting on them rather than, you know, uh, sorting them or, or whatever. But um, it's about what life we're going to have once climate change is solved. You yeah. know, like what what potentialities are we going to unlock with this? So I love that perspective. And was that always your perspective on energy or and and technology and stuff like that were you like an all renewables guy before this were you uh i'm vaguely anxious about climate and don't know a lot about energy or some like you know see all of the above type thing yeah kind of all of the above i guess i mean you know like a lot of people i hadn't really looked closely into energy um i hadn't done my homework on the subject so i consider myself yes to be a climate conscious citizen um and part and parcel of that was being a supporter of re- renewable energy um you know especially wind and solar um and and kind of i i guess sort of unthinkingly so so i started out you know with a pro renewables position um and it, in a sense i haven't become anti renewables sure yeah um you know i mean i i just i just want to find the best and fastest route to decarbonize our economies and combat mm-hmm. climate change but you know when i started to do that homework um guided very much by Jacopo and and some others um i i, I tried to understand you know a little bit more about how energy networks operate how the grid works um and i learned that and i didn't know this to, to my embarrassment but energy supply must at all times be equal to energy demand on the grid. Mm-hmm. You know, I just assumed, oh, you can store surplus and, you know, I hadn't really thought about it. Um, but of course, in in kind of really getting my head around that, that's where renewables have huge drawbacks, you know, mm-hmm. because the, the grid needs to meet the demands of consumers around the clock. That includes peak times such as, you know, the coldest winter nights, hottest summer days when we need the air you know the air conditioning in certain places um but yeah you know during the night solar's not producing you know renewables are intermittent wind's not always going to be strong enough to power the turbines um and of course with with climate change and increasing weather volatility renewables are becoming more volatile not and, and less reliable 
Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, we hear a lot in the you know they're becoming cheaper. Well, they're cheaper because we made them cheaper. If we back nuclear, guess what? It would become cheaper. Sure, um, yeah. You know, when when the political will's there, of course, you you can do lots, can't you? Um, and also renewables, they're not concentrated, they're not efficient, they require a huge land footprint compared to nuclear. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, hydroelectric is interesting. It's, you know, it's great. I love hydroelectric. Yeah, same. You, you'd have to be daft not to really. But, um, <laughs> but, but, the, but the problem there is that there aren't really any new opportunities to exploit and expand it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, at, at least not unless we're prepared to destroy ecosystems, you know, with new dams and the flooding that would be involved. Um, so for, from an environmentalist perspective, that doesn't really make much sense to do that. Um, albeit, yeah, look, there's always going to be trade-off in, in, in trade-offs in, in policy decisions. Um, but also with climate change, we're seeing droughts. We're seeing inland water volatility. So, I mean, you know, there's so much we could say about renewables, but I think the big turning point for me was um, when I came to understand that renewables required the backup of a reliable source. And if that reliable source is not clean nuclear, it will be a dirty fossil fuel. And that's the bottom line here. Um, so, you know, as I say, I'm not anti-renewables, um, but I don't understand why so many people slavishly unquestionably support them. I mean, I, I do to an extent because I did, but I understand what it's about. It, it's it's about um, ignorance, and that's not lack of intelligence. I mean, in, in lack of knowledge and understanding. Yeah, um, sure. I'm ignorant about plenty of things, right? Yeah, like yeah. That's, there's the, I just have no idea, you know. Well, yeah, no, I mean, exactly. And I, I, look, I think we we always need to step back from 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 what these issues, and and I mean, I'm I'm clear. Look, I'm I'm interested in clean, low carbon energy. Uh, we need to maximize low carbon electricity supply and, and, you know, not dogmatically promote a particular energy technology. So again, with nuclear, if something else comes along and it's more efficient, it's more reliable, it's, you know, does all the things we need it to do, then I, I will advocate for that. You know, I'm not, I'm not wedded to, to anything, but as an empiricist, I follow the evidence. You know, when we study the previous attempts to decarbonize, we see that countries like Sweden and France have managed to do so fairly quickly. Whereas Germany, you know, and I've written about this, Germany's struggling. And the key variable, oh, yeah. of course, is the deployment of nuclear energy. So Germany scrapped nuclear in favor of a mix of renewables and fossil fuels. Well, they they probably wouldn't they they wouldn't characterize it that way, but that's what's happened. And the result is no serious prospect of eradicating carbon emissions, mm-hmm. you know. But nuclear and, and and nuclear combined with hydroelectric is is pretty much the best energy mix in places where you you can have the dams and the hydroelectric works. Um, and you know, I'm all for a mix of nuclear with other renewables elsewhere. But on mm-hmm. current technologies, current battery storage capability and cost. We're kidding ourselves if we think renewables can provide more than about 40-50% of energy. Now, don't quote quote experts on that. I'm, you know, I'm not the authority on that, but everyone I've spoken to, you know, that's the kind of ballpark figure we're talking about here. Uh, and mm-hmm. frankly, you know, people need to wake up. You know, Germany needs to wake up. I love Germany. I used to live there, lived in Berlin. They are so pragmatic normally. It's, it's a grand stereotype, I know, but it's true. They're wonderful, wonderful people, but they've lost their heads. 
when it comes to uh, energy policy. Um, and no, completely. Yeah. I mean, to America's benefit as well, the amount of uh, manufacturing that we are getting uh, from Germany as energy intensive industry quits the scene. It breaks uh, my heart. Is, is wild <laughs> to watch. Um, you know, and I know I said that in an almost braggadocious way, but it's also just, just true. I mean, I don't, um, I really feel for the communities that are going to get screwed by that. You know, I mean, I think one of the things that I like that you're bringing this up is that sort of a slavish view, an overly dogmatic yeah. view has real consequences. Yes. Right. It impacts real people's lives when it gets to the level of like impl implementation and scale. And that's one of the things that I really liked about um, the pieces in Salon that you've written. I mean, first of all, I just want to preface this, like back in the day when I was in college or whatever, and I was a good progressive card carrying Democrat, not knocking that. I have people from all over the spectrum that listen to this podcast. Right. But that's who I was then. I listened to The Daily Show or I watched The Daily Show. And I read oh, Salon. John Stewart, I miss him. He's yeah, I, where I'd you know read early Glenn Greenwald and all of these other people. I think Jeremy Scahill also had some time there as well. Um, and I have dim memories then of it being sort of like baseline anti-nuclear in the way that you would expect a lot of American like soft left publications to be. Um, and so I was shocked to see these very thoughtful, patient pieces from you that were sort of walking through the drawbacks of renewables in a way that I thought was going to be very friendly to that audience, even if they didn't greet it with friendship. Uh, and one of the things that you brought up is that, uh, and this issue gets so undersold, um, is just from the empirical perspective, the land use issues are huge. Yeah for this. They're really huge, small island nations and stuff like that. Just the all renewables dream is really ad copy and not real policy. So tell me about sort of what it's been like to research and write these articles and then also sort of what the reader response has been at Salon, if you've gotten any or things like that, what you've you know, learned from all that. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, just as, a, as an aside, to, as you were speaking, I was reminded of something Joshua Goldstein uh, said to me, and as your listeners, they, they probably know Joshua from maybe mm -hmm. from his book, A Bright Future with Stefan Fist, or for, as a co-writer of Nuclear Now with Oliver Stone. Um, Joshua's a great guy, but he, he talks a lot of, and I, in fact, as you know, from the, what, the, the piece you're referring to, I, I write about um, his experience and what he's seeing up in Massachusetts, mm -hmm. particularly this this idea that we are destroying forests to clear ground for solar arrays. Mm -hmm. And and Joshua said something to me really simply, he said, when you think about the the fight for climate change, a tree is a great piece of technology. Why are we, you know, and so from an environmental perspective, why on earth are we doing this? And it's unnecessary. And it's, you know, all, for all the reasons I've I've outlined um so far. But and, and you touched the empiricist thing is important. I mean, I, I, I'm not a scientist. I'm not an engineer. Mm -hmm. I do, however, consider myself an empiricist. So the positions I take in those pieces in, in Salon and, and other things I do, um, they're, they're based on a clear evidence base, you know, um, because that's the only angle I know to take. So I put forward my opinions backed up by evidence 
providing citations, data sources mm -hmm. for any claims I make. Um, and, you know, I'm grateful for the opportunity to publish essays in, in outlets like Salon. The response, you know, to answer your question has been really positive. In fact, I remember seeing a comment. I don't really look at these things too much, but... Sure. Oh, it can be stomach-turning if you spend too much time in the comments. <laughs> uh, well, the trick is, the trick is don't get drawn into responding because somebody's going to get you stuck there, you know. Into, oh, never. Sorry. You never... You never want no. to violate, there, there are two rules for being online. And the first one is never apologize. And the second one is never get mad. Oh God. Yeah, definitely never get mad. You know, um, you, well, you're probably right on the other one. I hadn't thought about it. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I saw a piece and um, it, or maybe it was you, <laughs> maybe it was you under a pseudonym, but expressing pleasant surprise that a, a quote unquote liberal outlook would publish a pro-nuclear piece. Mm -hmm. But, you know, really, when you think about it, Emmett, clean energy shouldn't be a left-right. It shouldn't be a partisan issue. There's too much mm -hmm. at stake, you know. So I, I, I'm, I'm pleased that increasing numbers of people seem to um, understand that. Long may it continue. Um, but, you know... Yeah, as agreed. I love the sentiment there, too, that they're expressing pleasant surprise, not gloating. Not being like, we've been here for so long. They're like, hey, welcome to the party. Glad that we're seeing some agreement. I think that that is uh, for long-term industrial projects. Yeah. Consensus is the only way forward. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you get that political consensus in the will and you get things done. Particularly when, as you say, long-term with huge budgetary implications, but the the time span, you know, big infrastructure projects, which can take years, indeed decades, mm -hmm. well, way beyond the political cycle. So you need political leaders now from, you know, whichever persuasion to make big long-term strategic decisions, the, the benefits of which they will not see during their time in office. Well, yeah. you know, you need that. The only way you're going to ever have any prospect of achieving that is if you get that consensus. And we do see examples, and even in your politically war-torn country, we there are still some some shards of light, you know, every now and again. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that the biggest thing is this ingrained ignorance and opposition to mm. nuclear. Nuclear is the best clean energy source available to us. Mm -hmm. No, I think I think that's right. Just to just to add this little comment about our politically fevered, addled country. Um, I should add that even from the founding of the Republic, uh, the assumption has been that we would always hate each other. And indeed, that has borne out uh, uh, to present day. Um, it's sort of baked into the structure of our Constitution. Um, so let's uh, let's talk about um, let's talk about gridlock a little bit. Um, I've been I've been picking my way through the episodes. I'm so impressed by the roster of experts that you've gotten together. Um, it seems like a real labor of love. It has a nice NPR vibe. So what, let's just pan out and tell me, tell me and the audience, what is gridlock and what do you hope to do with it? Well, great questions. Um, and I'm pleased you're enjoying it. I mean, I think that was the, you know, we fail in that goal then we're, we're not going to achieve much else um i mean it kind of relates to what we've just been saying uh in, in a sense of mix if you, if you think about your side of the atlantic that, sorry my microphone let me get that back um 
let's think about where you are, the United, and what we were just saying, um, and the backdrop of a stubbornly challenging economic outlook. Uh, and we're seeing now those first, how can I say it, the first firing guns of the presidential primary season, they've started, you know, um, certainly with that first Republican debate. And, um, and you know, and on both sides, we're seeing this now, this, this Politico media circus is going to fill the second half of this year and all of next year. And, you know, it's in the context of what we're talking about here now. You know, some will push climate science denial and try to weaponize it as part of a sort of broader cultural war politics that's tearing through America, it's tearing through where I am here in, in Brexit land <laughs> um, and elsewhere. Um, but others on the other side will, will promote false environmental policy prescriptions as we've been touching on, yeah. you know, and, and ignorance about what different technologies can actually deliver. And, you know, in this post-truth era, both sides will push falsehoods in equal measure, both sides. Mm -hmm. And they will only see the ills of their opponent's ways, but they'll fail to recognize their own. And I say it again, both sides. You know, a campaign will happen, but there will be very little by way of genuine exchange of ideas because too many of us refuse to hear opposing views or engage constructively in debate anymore. We no longer care to listen. Mm -hmm. So we need to start listening again. And what better way than via a podcast like Barbarians or Gridlocked? Mm -hmm. You know, we, we can tune into podcasts at any time, you know, any time we like make it convenient to our schedule without interrupting it listen to a podcast you know on headphones we can listen to it running in the park sat on a train on a journey to work or sorry you're in america so in your car you can listen to your, <laughs> your to your podcast sorry i'm, I'm any these are only g gentle digs i'm not i don't mean any of it i love hey, it hey 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 no 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 it's right it's it's totally fine by me man <laughs> <laughs> But um, so, so, you know, I, well, here we go. I got together a bunch of Americans or, or people based in America, my, you know, for, for gridlock. So my co-creator, Mark Havener, he's, he's in um, Los Angeles and I introduced him to Jacopo at MIT and uh, a research affiliate called Rob Frieda, um, also up in Boston. And collectively we, we felt that, you know, the podcast was the right vehicle to build a discursive platform around. And we wanted to bring in, you know, you mentioned expert voices, but away away from that that heat and noise of political debate, and to try and create and, and build a community of listeners, and really to try to bring important issues to a wider audience, you know, outside of public policy and academia, and and away from all of that, you know, aforementioned political and and media bickering. Um, so the. the you know, and as for the, the, the initial focus was for season one was energy. And the reason why, I mean, really, when you think about it, and I, I don't need to convince you of this, um, but really, I mean, since the dawn of our existence on, on planet Earth, energy has been at the heart of everything we do. You know, it's, it's essential for our comfort, safety, health, productivity. But we're yet to develop and agree upon sustainable ways of providing the energy our societies need to power the lives we wish to lead. You know, that's true now and going forward into the future. So, so in those early planning conversations for Gridlocked, 
everybody was agreed that however you look at things from, you know, whether from an economic, environmental, geopolitical perspective, particularly important, you know, the current backdrop, the war in Ukraine, um, you know, but however you looked at it, the one obstacle underpinning so many of the challenges we face was the question of energy. So we decided that season one would be on on energy, but we wanted energy to be part of a broader show on wide ranging issues that are holding our you know societies back more broadly. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, and as you know, I'm the person charged with writing and scripting the show. So it it came to me that the the term gridlock, which I we you know developed into gridlocked, it seemed to sum up the state we're in, and then just a lot of the messaging it just came into my head in the way that my mind works. And, and I started to think about the covers you see for popular mm. economics, popular science books, behavioral science books, especially those covers over in the US. And that's how I came up the, the show strapline, why the 21st century is broken and how to fix it. And the idea is that we can then explore other topics. So another season could be on, as we've been touching, it could be on discourse itself. You know, mm. how can politically polarized societies uh, learn to engage once more in constructive debate without bringing, coming to the brink of civil war, you know, but that would be a big one to, uh, <laughs> that would be a big task to take on. Well, but an honorable one. Yeah. I mean, I think I really resonate with that as a project. So sort of before, I mean, it overlapped a little bit, uh, with nuclear barbarians, but I was doing a whole other podcast with a friend called Exhaust that the premise was, uh, why does nothing feel possible? Um, yeah. And it was looking into a lot of the same things. And we touched a lot on industrial history, but also like deep philosophical history and stuff like that to sort of get at the same questions. And so I really appreciate that you guys have this sort of... Um, I mean, it feels way more curated than anything we ever did um, because the production values are just so high. But what I like about it is that it feels so inviting. You know, I think where Gridlocked succeeds is that it, there's something about it that's just a welcoming project, even if it's about sort of how unwelcoming some of these topics are. Um, and like I said before, you have this, this whole host of experts that you guys um, get to talk to, uh, friends uh, uh, of, uh, I don't know if they're, actually my friends, but allies in the pro-nuclear movement, like uh, uh, people from Mothers for Nuclear in California. We've got uh, everybody's favorite, uh, Isabel Bemicky, um, you know, and uh, we have Carrie Emanuel, all of these people that are sort of like heavy hitters in uh, people that have inspired pro-nuclear sentiment. And so I'm sort of wondering, you know, you've gotten to talk to all these people what have you learned that you didn't know before? Because I imagine if you're just picking people's brains, like stuff has to come up. Yeah, that's a great question, Emmett. Um, oh, uh, I mean, funnily enough, they've had, and I'm a communications professional, right? They've helped me, I believe they've helped me communicate a little better. So mm. if you take Jacopo, Buongiorno, Joshua Goldstein, Harry Emanuel, they're all current or former professors and all i might add they're all enormously kind and generous with their time and their knowledge mm -hmm. um but by trade you know they're teachers who are good at clearly explaining concepts and ideas 
you know, in a, in a lecture theater, in a, in a seminar room. Um, so through their example, I've learned to try to slow down and explain myself in clearer terms. You know, um, <laughs> if I listen back to the earlier recordings, um, particularly the start of the season, um, so we, I mean, we recorded the interviews in a block, but we our bits, the narrative links, and that we've been doing as we as we went along. Um, but yeah, especially from the recorded interviews with contributors, um, what's the word? I cringe. I, I cringe. <laughs> I I cringe at hearing myself um, sure. because I I was you know sometimes just speaking just just slightly too fast. Um, and often not finishing my sentences or not fully spelling out my thought process, you know, and, and as a result, there was a lack of clarity in my, in my verbal communication. Mm. And I think my problem is my, my mind works fast and I jump ahead, you know, and sometimes you've got to remember, just, you know, complete that thought, finish that sentence. Uh, <laughs> so, um, before jumping ahead. So I've, I've tried to improve that and it, it's very much a work in progress. Um, but you, so you mentioned Mothers for Nuclears, um, and Kristen Zeitz is, is is another really good example. I mean, she is an incredible communicator. She's a civil engineer, mm-hmm. um, and as uh, and as as you've mentioned, she co-founded Mothers for Nuclear with Heather Hoff over in California. Um, played a leading role in saving, certainly delaying the premature closure of the mm-hmm. Diablo Canyon plant. Um, but one of the things I learned from Kristen is that having a compelling human story that audiences can connect with is probably the most effective form of communication. You know, I, I mean, I knew that theoretically, I knew that before we embarked on this project. Um, but listening to Kristen and reading about the background to how Mothers for Nuclear came into being really hammered it home for me. I mean, people should look on their website. There's great personal narratives there. Really, as I say, compelling. Um, And in fact, I was so taken by her example that I wrote a whole section in one of those salon pieces you mentioned, the the one about big oil. Mm. Um, Yeah, I I had a, I I used um, her story and in, in California, and then I spoke about Joshua in up in Massachusetts. Um, and then mix that in with my own from my, my time in Trinidad. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I've overall, I've learned so much, you know, great and small and feel incredibly fortunate to have had the opportunity to spend time with some, you know, truly incredible individuals who are impressive and inspirational in different ways. Um, so I, I remember feeling so inspired after the recording Mark and I had with Dave and Newman, uh, Dave's director of MIT Media Lab, former, she was, well, she was appointed by President Obama to be the deputy administrator of NASA uh, mm-hmm. just prior to this. And um, and at the end of the recording with Dave, I mean, like with, with the others, really, I just wanted to add an additional hour, you know, <laughs> to pick okay. our brain some more. I mean, it's impossible if anyone knows Dave and Newman's schedule her diary it that is always going to be an impossibility so forget it but um that you know that was i think it helps if you just enjoy the conversation that you're having with these people um it it does make for a you know better quality um output and i i think 
you know, whether it was Deva, Norman Foster, Guillermo Trotti. Um, I think the other thing I learned is because they, they all seem to have this innate positivity. Um, and it kind of, that was quite a lesson in itself because it made me realize that, you know, everything that you and I have been talking about so far, these are big issues. They're serious. You know, the political gridlock, the energy gridlock, um, very serious um, issues and challenges. Actually, if you do approach them with a little bit of positivity, you you can try to navigate them a bit more constructively. Um, mm. So I think that was, you know, that was really a lesson. And I should just add, I mean, there's, you know, you, you mentioned some of the people, but the opportunity to work with a couple of people who I would say are rising stars, um, I mean, established already, but but with so much more ahead of them, people like Stefan Kvist and Charlene Smith. Oh, um, Charlene's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got yeah. to meet her at the Breakthrough Dialogue. She's fantastic. She's somebody, her, and Giselle, her friend Giselle Lloyd over there are two people I'm trying to get on the show. Um, oh, I, well, had such, I had such a lovely time meeting them. And uh, I, I, t- do you know, I, I was um, speaking to Charlene only yesterday on, on another, um, well, we, we'll, um, we, you know, we've been working on some things and I'll, I'll, um, I'll tell her she has to come on Barbarians. I'll tell her she'll, she'll, if nothing else, she'll have a great chat with you and it, and it will be a, a jolly nice hour or so. Yeah, no, she's fantastic. And I think you're right. She is a rising star. Absolutely. Um, and that's always exciting when you're around people who you know are going to uh, sort of do things beyond your expectations later. You can just sense it when it happens. So, um, okay. So we have how many episodes in the can now for you guys? Eight? Um, oh, no, you're asking. Yes, we've just... Inflection point was the one we just released, which is eight. So we've got um, two more of the regular season. So actually, I just recorded a discussion show with Kerry Emanuel and Jacobo mm. um, last week, and then we've but from the stuff already in the can, we've got the the final episode coming, um, and then then we'll think about some bonus and bolt on shows um, moving forward. Oh, that's great. Um... So so at this point you've probably gotten some response. What's it been like? Yeah, I mean it's still early days. Um, perhaps too early to answer that fully. Um, Fair and, enough. But but you, well, we haven't actually started promoting the podcast yet. I mean, other than me doing some LinkedIn posts, you know, whenever we release an episode. Ah, and... so I'm an early adopter, Nick. I get it. You are. You are. Well, <laughs> well, the num the numbers are surprising, surprisingly encouraging, given that you know. <laughs> good. But, um, good. But no, I mean, we look. We've had some internal comms in some MIT departments, and nuclear science and engineering media lab. Um. So yeah, some light touch promotions. Things like D- David did a great tweet. I'm personally not on Twitter. I'm probably the only comms professional. Yeah, good world. for you. He's never. Yeah, I never to keep I it never, that way. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, whatever it's called now. Um, but but yeah, so we we've had a bit, but we we're yet to kind of um do do the full um launch. But the yeah the the, the feedback I've received has has been extremely positive. Um, but you know perhaps people are just being polite with me. Uh, I have had some people approach me asking to be a guest on the show. So I, I won't embarrass them by mentioning their names, 
but that feels like some kind of indicator of success, I guess. Yeah, it means people want to be a part of what you're doing, which is sort of the highest praise you can get, really, other than imitation, right? Like, yeah. But but, I mean, you're 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 a pretty good judge, you know. You're um one podcaster to another. What what do you make of it? I mean, where are you up to now? God, I don't even know. Um, I mean, it's been a little. This summer's been a little crazy in getting these out regularly, especially because I do I find all the guests, I do all the production and and stuff like that. Um, which can be uh, a little bit much with all the other things I have going on, but uh, I f- I feel your pain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You you already know. Um, so, I mean, I think what I like about it, and I think this characterizes the rest of your work. I've used this word before. Um, is that the show is patient, right? And I think, and I think that that's really good for again, that welcoming aspect of it. And, you know, there are things that I personally um, disagree with certain uh, experts with, but what I like about the show is that at no point do I ever feel like that's a hostile engagement with what's being said. Is I can be like, yeah, I see where they're coming from, but I don't really think that's all that or whatever. And that feels safe to feel. You know, it doesn't feel like a combative thing. I think those of us who do comms or talk about this uh, stuff for a living, one of the things that I've come, you know, like I'm kind of an asshole, like actually, um, <laughs> you know, like I'm I'm not like a let's all hold hands type of guy, uh, just sort of uh, temperamentally. And I'm trying to get a little bit better about that for all sorts of reasons. Um, but I would say that one of the things that's really important when sort of laying out an issue or whatever is almost like having the too perfect argument where you're like QED, like I'm just correct. Like even if you have the emotional narrative there, that's a hook to bring the person in and they resonate with that. Like there's almost a danger of being like too correct. And one of the things that does that I think is really surprising and that I think uh, your show avoids is that it, makes someone feel like they're being coerced even when they're not because the thing about something just being objectively or empirically right is that it doesn't really care about how you feel about that and so there's this big collision people have between their psychological emotional commitments their sense of who they are and then what the reality outside of that is right and this is a problem older than our current gridlock this is something that you can even find. Like if we want to ask the question, why does Plato write in dialogues? It's for this reason. It's because when you see the dialogic sort of dialectic unfold, you watch people being brought to the place where they're questioning their priors and it reveals something about their character and about the difficulty of having these conversations, right? So the, the phrase for it in the ancient Greek is aporia. And it's a place where you don't know what's up or what's down. And that's a very difficult place to be. If anybody's seen the John Carpenter movie, They Live, um, they'll be familiar with it. And it's about this guy, Johnny Nada, who's just some day laborer in LA. And he stumbles across a box of sunglasses that when you put a pair of them on, you can see through the propaganda of the world and it reveals its true message. 
And there is an eight minute fight scene in a back alley where he tries to get his friend to put the sunglasses on and his friend won't. And it feels like this big digression. But then you realize the reason why that fight scene is so long and so intense is because it's a metaphor for what we go through when we change our minds, when we're being forced to confront something there. And I think that that is a really delicate process to bring people into. It is one that podcasts, I think, can be really good at because it has, for better or for worse, a false sense of intimacy, right? It's how people can develop Mm. sort of a parasocial relationship with the people involved in the podcast. But that intimacy also allows people to be vulnerable while they're by themselves in a way that they might not otherwise. And so when I take a look at like what a successful episode of Gridlocked is, is I hear a bunch of moments where something's presented one way and then it is gently revealed that it might be another way and that I'm being asked to entertain those two things together. And I think the human stories really help do that. I think the, as you said, sort of the built-in communications acumen of some of these professors that you have on really shines through. Um, And I think it's something that a lot of comms professionals could actually learn from when they're taking a look at what might help change people's minds, you know? Um, yeah. So, so that, sorry, that's sort of my long digression. Oh, no, don't. Like, I could, no, no. <laughs> a fascinating. Um, I mean, two things on that. Firstly, I think I'm going to have to bring you on board if we ever do the discourse season, because <laughs> I think <laughs> you've nailed the outline to it right there. Uh, and I, you know, completely endorse what you, what you've said and, and the, um, and and I love the sort of depth in which you've you've thought about this. Um, I'm encouraged to hear that because my so when we started out, I, I, we we had these bold ambitions to take listeners on a journey, and I was very keen, and and everyone agreed, you know, didn't have any opposition that we need to sort of present the facts. We we want to educate and inform, whilst trying to entertain the audience, but let's lay them out. And let people decide for themselves. So I, you know, this wasn't a lobbying exercise, certainly not a pro-nuclear exercise, but we wanted wanted to be balanced. But at the same time, the, the challenge there was most of us, not all of us, I I, I would describe myself as an advocate for nuclear at the start of the, this whole, whole project. And I say so in the first episode. Mm-hmm. Um, not all of our guests are, um, but they're certainly open to it. And but uh, my only concern was having gone through the process it was hard to kind of keep that line and if you listen to certainly the narratives i I've, I've written and i deliver um i you know in the shows um i've kind of failed there i mean i it, it, it's hard for me not to just advocate a pro- we try and be balanced though you know we do um but so it's quite heartening to hear that maybe we you know, we and I haven't failed in that regard to quite the extent I was concerned. Maybe I had. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I'm way harder on renewables than you guys, and I'm way less hard on the fossil fuel industry than you guys. Right. right. So those are my two major disagreements there. And I still felt there was a freedom to sort of think independently and let gridlocked be gridlocked and me be me. Do, right? do you know, it's really interesting you say that there is, and I, Forgive me, it's either in the inflection point. No, it's not in the inflection point episode. In one of the shows, and now it may be the final one, 
But Jacopo makes a great point on fossil fuels, which I think you would subscribe to. And I do as well. And, and, it, and it's really along the lines that, look, they have been tremendously valuable. Mm. We, we wouldn't enjoy um, pretty much any of the, the things that we do in our lives today were it not for fossil fuels. You know, they, they built the world as we know it. And, um, but we've now reached a time in our energy evolution where it's time to move on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. You, you, you know, and I think if you sit in that way, and I, and I try to make that point in my salon piece about why big oil loves the renewables industry. Mm-hmm. Now, Joshua goes stronger and he, you know, is saying, look, there's an unholy alliance here. Mm-hmm. Um, and look at the realities of why is it that they're backing renewables? And we know the answer to that. But um, I, I did, I was keen to make the point, look, I don't think that, you know, big oil, so the, you know, gas and um uh, and coal and, and 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 the oil sectors. I don't think those executives in those big companies are evil. I think mm-hmm. that they're, they're, they're just they're strategists. They they understand how to run their businesses, and that's informing their you know these are rational business decisions that they're taking. Then these are not people trying to destroy the world or be be nasty to 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 us. Um, but the, but to Jacopo's point, look, we've reached a point where we. We need to evolve to the next thing. We do need to clean power our lives. And so actually, and this is where we need to break the political debt gridlock because we need actually our political leaders and our governments, and this is a point that Joshua Goldstein makes, they've got to make those big strategic decisions. Uh, and, and you know, we, we, you know, we need to build that consensus there. But this notion of pushing it onto individuals and us as citizens, as consumers and our behavior through things like this concept of a carbon footprint, and and we all get worried about, oh, should I be taking this flight? No, no, no. That's not how we do this. These have got to be, you know, this is actually an example where bottom up and little approach, little pieces don't add up to solving climate change. You've got to do it top down. Strategic. Yes, yes. As individuals, we can make choices. We can be climate conscious. Fine, but you, you, with global energy demand increasing more and more, and new mm-hmm. parts of the world, you know, new energy uh, electricity customers coming on each month by the bucket load. The only way we're going to do this is making strategic decisions to decarbonize and clean up how we produce and consume energy. Um, but yeah, so I, you know, I, I, I'm perhaps, but yes, I mean, fossil fuels, I, I suppose where I'm clear is, look, they're part of what we need as we transition to that clean energy future, but we, you know, that future cannot um, be a future in which we're continuing to cram yet more and more carbon into Earth's atmosphere. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, and Totally. I hear that. I think what I like about what you said and where I really resonate with it, and I think that this is something that I'm trying to do a little bit more, is starting from gratitude, whatever I'm talking about. There has to be a way, because here's here's what I fear, right? This is going to be sort of my last thing on like comms and how I think about talking about these things is that, you know, one of the most important forces in my entire life has been gratitude. You know, I, you know, I've been sober for like 13 and a half years now or something like that. And gratitude was a big part of learning how to reapproach my life um, and, and the way that that worked. And what I've realized 
is that when we have big challenges, and climate change being a big challenge, if we don't start from a place of gratitude for what we already have, we will inherently, intrinsically feel like we don't have the tools, that we don't have the inner resources or the external resources to tackle the problem. And it entrenches a culture of fear that obviates clear thinking. And so I think when I talk about energy now, I try to do it from a place of look at how lucky we have been and are to live in the world we live in today as it exists. That doesn't mean it's perfect. That doesn't mean it can't or won't get better, but it does mean that it's not nothing. And so we want to be prudent. We want to be thoughtful and we want to be open to the best possible choices we can make. So that's where I overlap. I totally hear what you're saying about like, you know, we should look back at what fossil fuels have done for us and be amazed. <laughs> you know, like yeah. this life is the fact that you and I are having this conversation, like on this whole apparatus yes, is absolutely. like pretty amazing. So I think this is a great segue to sort of my final question for you, which is uh, you've described yourself as an active optimist. Right. And I want to know, what do you mean by that? And what hopes do you have for the future because of that? I, I actually, well, first of all, congratulations on the 13 years. That's, that well, is wonderful. You. That is absolutely brilliant. Um, and uh, to your question, I mean, I think it actually, it was my co-creator, Mark Havener, who said that in our intro show. Um, and but what he, what we mean by active optimism is, I think, approaching the challenges we face. Well, I said it earlier, you know, that sense of optimism is really important, mm -hmm. especially when we think up, uh, think about some of the big challenges like climate change that humanity faces. So that, you know, sense of doom and gloom isn't going to help anyone, um, particularly not if, if we get fatalistic about it. Um mm -hmm. So I'm so for example, you have these COP summits, the conference of the parties, and we've got, I think is it COP twenty eight coming up. Now they yeah. have they're they're important, they're necessary. Um but they do tend to and they can make incremental changes. Sometimes they have major breakthroughs. It's brilliant, but often the messaging coming out of that is very kind of ugh, you know, doom and gloom. And I think if you mm. keep telling people that, they they're gonna switch off. Um, I actually think it, and, and to me, I I'm kind of, yeah, I know people who go to those and I think it's important. I, I've never personally be tempted to, to try and go along. Um, I'm open to it, but I'd much rather, you know, come on barbarians and have a conversation like we're having now. Cause I think this is where the more constructive action, this is where we, we bring about changes in these kinds of forums. Mm. Um, and, uh, yeah, positive, constructive engagement building consensus and trying to cut through the, you know, the, the divisions as, as we've been discussing, I, I think that's, I think that's what I mean by optic, uh, uh, active optimism. Um, 
and you're the other part of the question was about the hopes of a future well um i mean you know in a nutshell i hope we secure a clean energy future <laughs> and, and combat climate change yeah, yeah. okay you know, and, and but in doing so, you know, create a more, and I, I write about this is ingrained, it's my mantra. I, you know, I want a more equitable world which operates sustainably, uh, sustainably to ensure that future generations can inherit viable societies on a livable planet. And I, you know, it's yes, it sounds grandiose and idealistic, but it's actually quite a modest ambition, you know, and yet with, you know, this this climate emergency it it's real it's pressing um it's immediate you know this summer i was swimming off the coast of tarragona across the, the the mediterranean sea for me 16 italian cities were on you know emergency because of the the heat on roads they were the biggest evacuation in in greece is well peacetime history um we've seen you know we're seeing all all of these these events at, um uh, they're on our doorstep now. They're literally lapping at our doorstep, um, and and that so that simple vision for the future could be fading from view. So, I, in a way, I'm, I'm making it my personal mission, my my purpose, if you will, to keep trying to play my small part, and 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 to keep making my personal contribution to that goal of, a, a, you know, a, a world that's worth you know, our children, our grandchildren inheriting. Um, but more specifically, um, I'm writing more, you know, that's, you know, it's my passion. I'm hoping to develop it. Um, and, and I think really, you know, in this, this, this sort of post-truth era where, as we've touched on, I think many of us, we're just, we refuse to listen to opposing views. We're, we're not engaging constructively anymore. So I think that the biggest challenge we face in the 21st century um, is, is that, and I think if we don't overcome it, I'm not sure how we rise to the climate change challenge or any of the other big issues that we need to grapple with. Um, so uh, I, I think in my my writing and my work, I, I aim for it to be just a, a little shard of light piercing mm. through the hot, dark noise of contemporary discourse. All right. I love that. That's a great note on which to end. Nick, thank you so much for joining me. This was a very lovely chat. Everybody, you can find Nick's articles that we talk about and a link to Gridlock in the show notes. Go check it out uh, and see for yourself what it's all about. And remember, everybody, stay sharp, stay strong, and stay radiant. We will see you next time.